Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Green Jeans. I am your one co-host, Annika Van Rossum, using pronouns she, her. And I'm your other co-host, Maya Van Rossum, also using she, her. And if you can tell by our last names, we are in fact related. We are a mother-daughter duo, and this podcast is us talking about all the very important social and environmental justice issues through a generational lens, because for some reason, all the things that my mom and her generation were aware of, raising the alarm bells about, fighting against back in the day are now really big issues or things that we are still fighting about uh, to this day for my generation. So that's what we're here to talk about. Yeah, mom, do you want to? Well, actually, before we get into the podcast, I think we just have to remind people that if you go down in the description link, there's something cool they can find that you're coming out with. Yes, they can pre-order the new book, The Green Amendment, The People's Fight for a Clean, Safe, and Healthy Environment, which is coming out November 1. And if you go to that link, you are taken to the place on the website that allows you to order the book from whatever is your personal preference for where to purchase books, right? We all have different preferences about different kinds of things. And I think there's pretty much a pathway to every every place where you can buy the book from that that page that we linked to. So thank you for remembering that, Annika. I'm pretty excited. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to read it soon. All right. So go check down at the link, the link in the description for the episode, and you'll be able to get right to it. So would you like to introduce this week's topic? I will be happy to. The one thing to know, right, whenever, when when we're um, talking about the environment, whether we're talking about good or bad, usually when we're talking about bad, um, cumulative impacts is a key term, right? And so one, envi- one um, industry spewing out a certain kind of pollution or one development project in the floodplain operating on their own might not be having a huge impact and be perfectly sustainable. But when you start introducing more and more and more and more of that harm, the cumulative impacts come together and can result in devastating harm. That's why we have, for example, the climate crisis. It's not because of one pollution spewing industrial operation, but it's a multitude and all different kinds. So it's cumulative impacts, death by a thousand cuts. There are a lot of ways to say it, but Um, And one of the big areas where cumulative impacts really is important and um, is in this area of invasive species. And the reason why I'm sort of hemming and hawing a little bit is when I was thinking about this, right, I was thinking about, Annika, how a lot of the species that invasive species that you and I are going to talk about today, maybe when you were younger, We had a few of them and it wasn't a big problem. But now over the years, as you've grown up, the populations of these species have expanded and now we have serious consequences. So that was sort of what I was thinking in terms of our generational um, storyline of thinking and cumulative impacts. Which is all to say that today's story is talking about invasive species. And what is an invasive species? People always wanna know. So I'm just actually going to read out an official definition, which I actually think came from USGS, because I think it's just really helpful to be very official when we're defining this kind of term. And they say that an invasive species is an introduced non-native organism, might be disease, a parasite, a plant, or an animal, 
that begins to spread or expand its range from the site of its original introduction, and that has the potential to cause harm to the environment, the economy, or to human health. So that is how they define an invasive species. And I think what you can see implicit, implicit in that definition is cumulative impacts over space, over time, and potentially over generations. Yeah, I mean, I think as a kid, I was always like aware of invasive species because you're my mom and I've seen you many a time, very frustrated, ripping, usually plants out of, well, plants out of the ground and vines and things and get really angry and stomp on stuff and all that. And so I think I've known about invasives. So I think too, a lot of people, you know, I think we hear a lot about invasive animals, but people don't also realize that like plants can be invasive and can have devastating effects. Like if you're just driving down the highway and you see all these vines covering trees, a lot of times they end up being an invasive species. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, you've heard me, I think you've heard me and seen me come back from what I call the pricker wars. Um, and often the pricker is a pricker known as multiflora rose. And I actually hadn't intended to talk about that species today. So I didn't look up the the, the date specifics of it, but as I always understand it, is multiflora rose, first off, it's a pricker bush and it has beautiful white flowers that flower in the spring. Um, and in fact, multiflora rose was encouraged by a nonprofit birding organization. Um, it, they encourage people to plant multiflora rose because it was good for the birds. Um, and in fact, multiflora rose is an invasive species and is really has significant consequences for environments and ecosystems and really takes over. And, and if it gets into your garden and it grows big, then you're like me, you find yourself in the pricker wars trying to get that multiflora rose out and in so doing inevitably get all cut up. And well, come back with a bleeding ear and a bleeding arm and a bleeding leg and your children a little bit freaked out by all the blood. Yeah, I have definitely seen, seen you come back like you just got in a massive fist fight. Um, so that's always interesting. Before we get into like introducing the specific species we're going to talk about today, just because you brought up that this was encouraged by um, an organization. And so that's how, you know, things get introduced. I don't, this is a like a quick story that I don't actually know if it's true. It's one of those things I've heard so many times. I don't know if it's just some example I heard in science class or it's an actual true story, but basically the whole concept of invasives too is usually society has brought in other invasives or other awful things to undo the bad thing that they started off doing because they didn't realize. And I think the story goes like there's some island again if this is an accurate story and somebody's listening to this is like this girl doesn't know what she's talking about I just don't remember but I've heard it um that like these sailors came and they went to this island and they had all these all these mice running around they're like oh man how are we going to get rid of the mice so then they went and they brought in these non-native snakes to come eat all the mice and they sure did and then they sure as heck started thriving everywhere and so then they're like, oh man, now we have this big snake problem. What are we going to do about it? And then they brought in non-native mongoose to eat all the snakes. And then now the mongoose are, of course, not native and running over everything. So just this cycle of like people having not paid attention or bringing in animals or plants for usually like a hunting or survival purpose. And then we are all raking the effects of it, raking in the effects of it years later. 
So I just wanted to add that fun little story. If it's, I think it's a true story. I just don't know. Where. The truth is it actually doesn't matter if it's not true because it's really a, a great example, right? So true or not, even if it was just a, a, a fictional parable, it demonstrates the point. And that actually does happen. And, and you know what, we should think about doing a show on that right, where invasives were brought in to deal with other invasives. And I think that that's a whole other story or a whole other show that we could do. And we should we should mark that um, and perhaps do that because that would be interesting as well. But so let's dig into a couple of the invasives that we um, decided to talk about today. One of them is called zebra mussels. Now, zebra mussels are a little mussel. They're striped, hence they're called zebra mussels. Um, and they can be very, very small. Often they're no bigger than the size of a penny. Zebra mussels originally came from Eurasia um, and they actually came in the ballast water of ships. And for those who don't know what ballast water is, um, when ships, for example, when ships come into the Delaware River and they might be laden with um, some sort of product, after that product gets offloaded, the balance of the ship is different. And so the ship will actually suck in water to help sink it down in the water and give it balance. And then the ship goes off. And then when it goes off to its destination, and is going to load back up with whatever its product is, it will let out that water that it took from where it came from. That's called ballast water. And so these zebra mussels were in, in the ballast water of ships where, that brought that water from Eurasia and released it into waterways here in the United States of America, very notably the Great Lakes. And it's actually believed that that's where the zebra mussels that are now here in the US sort of originated. Um, and they're actually talking about, it's a little bit confusing because they're saying that the, um, that the zebra mussels are native to Eurasia, but the belief is that the zebra mussels came to the Great Lakes as a result of ballast water discharged by lar large ships that had come from Europe. So I don't follow exactly that story, but nonetheless, in the Great Lakes. And what happened was these little mussels got into the Great Lake waterways. And what these little mussels do is they proliferate very, very quickly and they attach themselves to water intake pipes. And they literally clog up those pipes. And so power plants that need to suck in water or drinking water supply um, facilities that need to take in water from a natural system, they get totally clogged up by these zebra mussels that are literally caking over, clogging over, covering up the water intakes essential for these various operations. And in fact, um, it can be very, very costly. It says that zebra mussels can, can have been reported to um, be ha sort of be a density that is over 700,000 individuals per square meter in some parts of the Great Lakes. I mean, if you think about a square meter, that's what, about three feet by three feet, 700,000 of these little critters. If it's an intake um, pipe, that gets covered over pretty, pretty quickly. And it can cost a lot of money for um, people to deal with. Yeah, that's, I don't, you know, that's just an insane amount. And I think it's too, it's like, 
I was I feel bad when we talk about invasives in the sense of we're like oh these really awful things which are not actually awful in themselves when they remain where they are supposed to be or part of the ecosystem but then they get brought to places that they're not supposed to be and obviously people have created all sorts of structures and things that are not animal nature compatible as we know like just roads in general um so it's like, it does, it just always makes me feel bad, but that's crazy. Yeah, and thinking about cumulative impacts, they talk about the zebra mussel um, actually coming to the Great Lakes in the 1980s. So that, you know, mid 1980s, right? That's when little baby Annika mm. came about. Um, and so now- I'm born oh in 96. Gosh, no. <laughs> okay, 19, 10 years before you. Oh my gosh, time flies. <laughs> Oh, I, I am really her mother. I swear I'm her mother. I know when she <laughs> came out. Anyway. All right. Well, it sounded good. It sounded good. It sounded like 1980s when you were a baby. That sounded like good time. Okay. So they were a little bit before your time, but nonetheless, now they are a, a big problem. Um, and environmentally, they can be a big problem because they uh, can outcompete native organisms for the... Um, the algae and the food that's actually in the water that other native organisms need. And so they, they, um, they are filter feeders and, you know, they just suck up all the food very literally. Um, and while they're sucking up the food, so native organisms don't have food to eat. They are also blocking up the intake pipes that are trying to suck up the water, but can't because the zebra mussels are clogging them over the, uh, Army Corps of Engineers has called the zebra mussel, quote, the most troublesome freshwater biofouling organism in North America. And the US Fish and Wildlife Service thinks that they, that um, the zebra mussels have the potential of causing an economic impact, an ec adverse economic impact on the order of $5 billion. Um, in U.S. and Canada to the Great Lakes region over the next 10 years. Pretty big impact environmentally, pretty big impact for business operations, pretty big impact in terms of dollars and cents. And they say that the student loan forgiveness crisis is costing the country. <laughs> just saying, <laughs> just saying. <laughs> um, I'm with you. I'd rather give that five what was it? Was it 5 million, 5 billion, whatever it is, 5 billion. I'd rather give that to students to pay off their loans. That sounds more fair. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So that brings me to my next invasive species called the tree of heaven. Um, and so I, we have this problem actually, and I got this, which is also a great, if you live in um, East coast, Pennsylvania area, Penn state actually has like a lot of great information on their website through this. So this is through PSU extension. Um, so these, again, like my mom was just explaining with a lot of invasive species, they are prolific at procreating. Um, so female tree of heavens are actually prolific seeders with the potential to produce more than 300,000 seeds annually. Um, and they're able to sprout as young as two years old is when they can start doing that. And actually one of the big things is they create, it's called an allopath, allelopathic chemicals in its leaves, roots, and bark that can limit or prevent the establishment of other plants around them. And they're able to grow as high as 80 feet tall and six feet in diameter. Um, 
And so they what the origin story is that they were brought here from Northeast and Central China, as well as Taiwan. And it was first introduced into the US in the Philadelphia area in the late 1700s. Um, and then it was also introduced to the West Coast in the 1850s. And one of the biggest problems is it really affects the area in many ways. It has a really aggressive root system, which also for people who don't really care about nature, but care about infrastructure, money, whatever, it gets the roots go really far deep and then actually will come up and they're known to actually cause damage to pavements, sewers, and building foundations. Um, so a lot of money then also has to go back into fixing all of that. So if you also really like your people things, then you should care about invasive species because you have to pay for it in the end when it destroys it all. So when did you say that Tree of Heaven came to the region? To Philadelphia in the late 1700s. Oh, wow. So it's been around for a while. Well, Tree of Heaven's a problem. It's a nice name. Um, and like, and like I know, I don't, like... Rose, I think it's even pretty when it, or it smells nice, or it has a pretty flower, but pretty name, pretty flower, pretty smell, but bad species. Yeah, which also, if you're curious, if you have one, I don't, we used to actually, I thought we had one in our front yard. Yes, no, time. we, we don't, we don't have it intentionally, but we have tree of heaven that pops up periodically or not. So it's not so infrequently. And then I have to pull them out. At least what I think is tree of heaven. Yeah. So if you ever, if you're curious, if you have something, it's like, I don't know how to describe it. It's a really long leaf with the, the leaves are each like perfectly paired off. Go to PSU extension, type in tree of heaven, and it will show you all the ways you can identify it. Um, and I didn't want to really go over how you kill it. Cause it seemed like it had a lot of um, pesticide things. And one was like to spray it with glyphosate, which is if you listen to our honey episode. We have talked about how that is not good and actually ends up in honey. Um, so I don't, I don't actually know the best way to get rid of it besides chemicals. And I'm not going to be here to promote you to spray your lawn with chemicals or your yard with chemicals. Yeah. So I'm, I, 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 I think that people really need to look it up, right. And they need to look it up and they need to consider what is the, the problem um, in their garden or their community and then use the best pathway. Yes, we are anti-chemical, but there are some things in some places and some spaces um, where you really do end up having to use chemicals in an appropriate limited way to eradicate the problem so you can make space for the healthy natural ecosystems. But it's a, it, it has to be done very thoughtfully, very mindfully, very carefully, and for a specific reason. And if you can do it in a non-chemical way, you should. And I think mostly, you know, what people have in their gardens probably is something that can be um, dealt with by hand. So Annika, it's very interesting. Also, Tree of Heaven. Tree of Heaven is actually a beloved, uh, I think it's a food source for another invasive species that actually also seems to have started in the Philadelphia area. It actually is believed to have originally come to the United States in Berks County, um, which is one of the suburb counties out and around um, Philadelphia or in the Philadelphia, broader Philadelphia region. Um, it is the spotted lanternfly. You know what the spotted lanternfly is, right? I do. Horrible. I was at <laughs> actually a funny note before you get into talking about them um, is I think it was like the summer where they were really where they first started coming up here and it was really bad was at my friend's graduation party um, when we all graduated college. 
they were all over the yard and so we made a drinking game out of smashing spotted lanternflies and one landed on my thigh and my my one friend he just stared at me and he's just like you you know I have to hit it and I ended up with a really big handprint on my thigh to kill a lanternfly so I really took oh one my. for the took one for the environment that day you did. And that is that that is the recommendation with spotted lanternfly is that it is such an invasive that if you if you see one, you are supposed to expeditiously expeditiously deal with it by killing it. Um, and the so the spotted lanternfly came to the to the US, believed to have started in Berks County, Pennsylvania, um, around 2014. Um, and it's believed that or that's when it became started to become a problem because then there's also some discussion about it actually coming in a stone shipment from China in 2012. So I don't know why the date discrepancy, but it's around that time frame. Um, and it came over in the shipment and quickly started to proliferate. And so what 2014 is less than 10 years ago. And now the spotted lanternfly is found in um, not just Pennsylvania, but 11 states total. So Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Delaware, Indiana, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, Ohio, Virginia, and West Virginia. And what the spotted lanternfly does is it sucks the sap from plants and trees, and then it, it creates and secretes a substance that further weakens the plant or tree that it's sucking sap from. And um, eventually it ends up killing killing the plant. Uh, it is, there is tremendous concern in California that in the next, within the next five to 10 years that the spotted lanternfly will reach California where there is concern that it will have really devastating impacts for um, the winery industry because it will have impacts to grapevines. And it's not believe it's it's believe it's believed that it's not just um, grapevines, but that the that there are other crops that can and or will be harmed by the spot, spotted lanternfly, including almonds, apples, walnuts, cherries, hops, peaches, plums, and apricots. So if you love any of those delicious foods, they are put at risk by the spotted lanternfly. But as I I'm going to sort of end this point where I began it. One of the plants the spotted lanternfly actually loves is the tree of heaven. Another example of the mice to the snakes. The, well, I guess it wasn't brought in, but it's definitely, I think a lot of invasive species too end up finding, it's connected to some other invasive species in some other way is what ends up happening. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think they can be. I think the worst thing though too, right, is they, they overwhelm the native species. Um, I do find in my garden, right, I'll find the invasive grapevine um, sort of competing with the mile a minute, competing with, you know, all kinds of different other invasives that come in year to year with the Canadian thistle and other things, and they all seem to compete to kill my garden. Um, so I spend a lot of time um, trying to deal with the invasives so that my natives can survive. Um, and sometimes I get a handful of three, four different types of invasives all at once. Cause again, they're all competing with one another. It's quite crazy. 
Yeah, and if you walk down, I mean, if you walk down Philadelphia too, I was actually there a couple weeks ago and I was walking down the street and there was just like one building where it looked like, it looked like they had all just rammed into this one building. There's just a ton of them dead everywhere. I'm assuming people were like smashing them, but it was just interesting on this one. There, like, there's always a few throughout Philadelphia, but just on this one specific building, there are at least like a hundred lantern flies. Yeah. And the thing is about the spotted lantern fly was it's kind of tricky. And if you, once you know what they are, you know what they are when you see them. But I remember the very first time I saw like a little spotted lantern fly, a baby, I guess I was like, Oh, what is that? Oh, is that a spider? Oh, is that a whatever? But um, they, they are, they begin as these little black creatures with white spots. And then they evolve to become red creatures with little white spots and then they become the full-fledged fly and they have these wings with brown wings with spots on them and when they splay their wings out there's this bright red that shows in the center um I mean actually the fly is actually kind of quite attractive um I think they look cool it's well, very, very deadly <laughs> they look cool yeah I think the one I think actually Dave my bonus dad, your husband said one time that also the big problem was, and I, th I haven't seen that many in our, around us this year, actually. Um, but was that like most of the native species also, cause it's brightly colored and all that don't actually know that they can eat it and nothing will happen to it. So it didn't have really any predators. I don't know what the situation is now, but like really any predators that were actually like picking it off either, but it don't, it's not toxic to any animals that eat it it's just a flipping menace <laughs> yeah. and the the on the economic front right on the economic front it's um there was one economic analysis just for the commonwealth of pennsylvania where they talked about the spotted lantern spotted lantern fly costing the state between 300 and 550 million dollars annually as well as 2,500 to 5,000 jobs, I guess, because of the ramifications on the environment, on species and, and on other things. Um, but one of the, also the sort of sad side effects, as you said, if you see it, you're supposed to kill it because of its devastating consequences. And one of the things that they recommend that people can do is when the, when the, um, the, the, they're, they're flies, but they don't fly. They actually hop and they just hop really far. And the little babies climb up the trees to get to the tops of trees to do their, their nasty deed, but they actually start climbing up the stumps. And so one of the things you're supposed to do is put sticky paper, carefully, specially made sticky paper around the stumps and the lower branches of trees. And then the spotted lanternfly, as they go to walk over it, they end up getting stuck there. And when you do this sticky paper, I mean, it can just be covered with these spotted lanternflies. But the thing is, is if you're not careful about where you place that sticky paper or how you place that sticky paper, it has been known to um, stick birds. You know, and that yeah, yeah. particularly little baby birds can get stuck to this paper and then they die or older birds, you know, their, their wings can get stuck to the paper. And then when they try to pull it off, they literally leave some of their wings behind. So that sticky paper can have really significant consequences for other wildlife. But I, as I understand it um, from colleagues is that there are different 
kinds of approaches that are being done. So one of them is, is a kind of paper you put around the tree, but actually the stickiness is on the inside, not the outside. So just like with Tree of Heaven, if you're seeing this in your garden, you really want to be part of the solution and, and help to deal with it. But do your research. See what is the, the, the best, most recent research on how to handle this critter and do it in a way that's not going to be harmful to other critters or other aspects of the environment. You can also, if you either put the tape, I know a lot of people who get the sticky tape and they'll just put it low enough down on the tree so that's not something birds are flying into is one recommendation. Also, if you just I have a friend who does it, if you just take a a water bottle, they did it with a plastic water bottle, um, but please don't go buy plastic water bottles to do this. And they would just walk up to the tree and just like stick it on the lantern flies and it would jump into the bottle and then it couldn't figure out how to get back out. So my friend would just fill their water bottle with lantern flies. I, it's not pleasant. I'm just, they were like, it was a brain break during the day. Um, yeah. Seems yeah. like it takes a lot of time. Oh yeah. Okay. No, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I don't know. It's a weird thing. It's a weird thing. But speaking of weird things. I have a very interesting uh, invasive species issue, which is not from America, and it's maybe some people have heard about it, but they're called the quote, cocaine hippos. <laughs> so if you've oh never boy. heard of so taking it down to South America and Colombia, um, don't worry, the hippos are not on cocaine. That is not what's happening. But basically the cocaine hippos are descendants from Pablo Escobar's hippos. So way back when Escobar had his his big house if you don't, Pablo Escobar is a big drug lord kingpin if you didn't know um way back when he had his big house and of course with all his money he said wanted a private zoo at his home and his private zoo boasted over 200 animals and it was known to have exotic birds giraffes elephants rhinos ostriches and four hippos um so these four hippos were so after Escobar died, well, I guess he was shot. After Escobar was shot, um, all the police went and started seizing things from his home. And I don't, it's not, this part is weird because I just mentioned that he had elephants. So I'm not clear what animals were actually there when the police went to go seize everything. But a lot of the animals were then taken and put in zoos elsewhere throughout South America, except the four hippos were left there because they were considered like logistically difficult to move so that's why I'm saying I don't know what animals because it seems like elephants are logistically difficult to move but maybe the elephants weren't there anymore um so they basically figured they would just leave the hippos behind and they would die and this is in 1993 which is actually closer to when I was born mom <laughs> so really sad and given that at the time they thought they were logistically difficult to move. Oh man, boy, are they logistically difficult to move now because now the numbers are different, but the range has gone from the four hippos to now somewhere between 80 to 120 hippos. 80 to 100, 120 hippos traveling down one of the biggest rivers in Colombia, whose name I had somewhere and it's not <laughs> appearing in my notes. But so they are just like, wreaking havoc on the environment because they don't have any natural predators because hippos do not exist in South America. Um, and it's one male, it was one male with three females. So like, obviously there's some genetic issues too probably going on, but there's nothing like in any of the reports I read 
that, you know, like anybody's really unhealthy or anything like that. Um, but it's definitely, it's, so they have no natural predators. And one of the issues they're having is because of their size, <laughs> hippos are big. Um, they do displace a lot of native species like the manatee, which is close to extinction. So that's a big issue. And if you don't know, like hippos poop a lot. And so they actually alter the chemical composition of the waterways, which could endanger fisheries. And I mean, they're like big animals that are tromping through things. And there's been no um, attacks on people. Nobody's died, which does actually happen in Africa because they are so aggressive. But there was a farmer who got like seriously injured. Um, and so, but they have no natural predators. And one of the things too, they found out actually that the hippos are actually having babies earlier is because in Africa, the population is limited by the drought season. Like they don't reproduce in drought, but there's no drought season in South America. So they're able to procreate whenever they want. And there's actually like showing that they're doing it earlier. I, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> And they're the the well, so also what I said with the 120, they're projected to reach populations over 1400 as early as 2034. So four hippos was logistically easy to move up until now. So where are they hanging out? I mean, they're going down this river and then did they just go up and down the river? They so it just, I just found it in my notes spreading through one of the countries, this is from BBC, spreading through the country's main waterways the river Magdalena. Yeah, they're just hanging, they're just going. They're just going. They're just hanging, place. they're just going. Well, on the flip side of this super, super big pooping hippo, <laughs> procreating pooping hippo, um, here back in the US, we have very small something. Um, it's a, a little, I don't know if they're called uh, little diatoms, little aquatic al algae that are called Didymos venia geminate. And you call it either Didymo or rock snot <laughs> for short. It's called a rock snot because it, this algae grows into these mats that um, just cover and blanket rocks and the bottom of the river and, um, and actually can smother out the the aquatic ecosystems and the organisms and the way they move is sometimes little bits can break off but they move because actually people are transporting them and so here we couldn't get rid of the hippos because we had four hippos and we couldn't get rid of them and with the rocks <laughs> not you know we all we can do is is they seem to they get caught in people's boots and things and so people are literally tromping them from stream to stream river to river um and they're then blanketing the bottoms with their rocks not so I don't know, two ends of the spectrum, <laughs> both seems to be causing big problems. I was going to say too, it's actually, well, it's interesting, just like with transporting things, <laughs> hippo traffickers don't think hippos are logistically difficult to move now because there actually is a problem where they are taking the calves and selling them to wealthy ranchers. Um, so just in the, you can move really big invasive species and you can move really tiny invasive species. Who wait, they're selling them to ranchers in South America or somewhere else? That's in I think in South America. That's what it's a town of this is in mongabay.com. A uh, town of Doradal. I'm probably saying that wrong. 
Near Escobar's fabled ranch is a center of the hippo trafficking trade, which targets calves and sells them to wealthy ranch owners as a status symbol. It could be America, too. It just, that's what it says. All right. Well, I mean, they're just perpetuating the problem, right? I mean, they're buying them to spread them. And you know what? You don't, you don't have to buy a baby, baby hippo. I mean, pretty soon it sounds like they're going to come to you anyway. So just wait a couple of years and you can have baby hippos tromping through your farmland. Um, you don't need to spend lots of money on them. Yeah. Which is also, I just, this was the other point I wanted to bring up on the hippos. There's a big basically debate about what to do with them because some people said they should just sterilize them all and like not have to because the big recommendation is to cull them which culling is to to kill a certain number if you don't know um sterilizing a hippo costs for one that they did it's very scary they had a very difficult time and it cost fifty thousand dollars to sterilize that hippo um and so but the other arg so one is that they're going to destroy the ecosystem the other argument is to let them live because they are this like very safe genetic population and because hippos are under attack in Africa and being poached and all that here is this genetically safe species of hippos off in Colombia don't ask me I don't know how I feel about it either way I just like I said before I feel bad because invasive species usually are fine where they are and then they're put somewhere else and then they're a problem and it's people's fault and that makes me sad yeah. And then it's people's fault. And then people are instructed to just kill them. I mean, and it's one thing if you're talking about rocks, not, but, but it is another thing when you pull out a snakehead fish and then you're told to kill it, right. Rather than put it back, right. We spend a lot of time um, talking about, um, you know, recreational fishing where you actually put the fish back after you've, you've had the experience of catching the fish, right? And we, we have all sorts of things like that where we're really encouraging young people and people in general to interact with nature, appreciate nature, and then put nature back. And here we start bringing in invasive species, whether, you know, it's a spotted lanternfly or whether it's um, the, the, the snakehead fish or whether it's the hippos. And we're asking people to go around and smash them. And there is something, I'm like you, like, I, I don't, I understand the need to, when it's a truly invasive species, I understand the need to not put it back in the environment and ultimately to kill it. But, but there is something heart-wrenching about this idea of going around and killing hippos or catching a fish and, you know, doing what you need to, to kill the, I, I, there somehow it, it hurts the heart because as you the, said, it's not their fault. I think <laughs> I tell my friends, I'm like, it is truly the environmentalist dilemma is invasive species. I think, cause yeah, I mean, it's like, I don't want to do any of it. I also don't want the, the beautiful plants that are supposed to be here or the beautiful birds and animals that are here you know, getting overrun by these things that are, that are not even just, you know, that are like making it so they starve maliciously and the two can't coexist. I mean, that's always the thing too, is that the two usually nine times out of 10 can't coexist. And so not it, when it's the, an invasive, right? Not when it's an when invasive. It, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a choice of one over the other. So that is very sad. I agree. But yeah, so there are lots of invasive species throughout the country. Keep your eye out, you know, read books up on it. 
And when you can be part of be part of the solution, I mean, one of the invasive species as one of the side notes that gets talked about is feral cats, right? And one of the solutions for feral cats is that you don't have to go kill the cats, is that you can take those cats and get them neutered, right? And um, now some people will say to kill the cat because they end up killing the birds um, and the native birds. So again, as you said, it's this whole it's this whole dilemma. But but a big part of that solution is just don't help them have babies. Um, so do your research, find out about the invasives, don't bring them into your garden, don't go to the big box store and buy the invasive plants and introduce them. Um, you know, if you are going from a place with spotted lantern flies to driving across country to a state that doesn't have them, make sure you're mindful that if you're driving during a time of year when the spotted lantern flies are little babies, um, or they're, you know, they're, they're still eggs in a seed pod, take a look around your vehicle and don't be part of the problem by taking, um, the seed pods or the, the flies to another state. It's, it's difficult, takes a little bit of extra time, but it's not as difficult as moving a hippo. I would agree. I would agree. So yeah, I think that's this week's episode. Thank you for listening. We hope you guys enjoyed Remember, go down to the description link and you will see a, there's two links. There's one where you can donate to Green Amendments for the Generations if you really enjoy this podcast and what we do, help support the movement. We are not a personal gain family. We are only here for the environment. So it all goes back to that movement. And if you also are looking for a new book and the holidays are coming up quite quickly. So if you need some gifts, then maybe do some pre-orders of the second edition of the Green Amendment book, which is also in another link in the episode description. So I think with that, we will see you next time. We'll see you next time.